Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and with me this week, as always, is Simon Elliott, the Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. So, Simon, we've had a very sharp market fall starting in March. We had quite a very good rally uh, since then. Uh, and what's been the story this week, though? Not quite so clear cut, perhaps. No, I think this, you're absolutely right. This is the week, I think, when investors... Um, have taken a little bit of a step back and just really thought through in terms of where we're going with this. We had seen a very re- good recovery. Uh, and indeed, in some some particular companies, investment companies, they're back at levels not too far off uh, where they started the year. But I think there has been a, a period of reflection this week. And you can see that in terms of the market moves, we're probably going to end up flat on the week or a little bit down. Um, but there's been it's been a lot more uh, volatility, a few steps back, half a step forward. And I think that makes sense, really, because I think even though we can see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of the lockdown, I think the light is now shining on where we go from here. How long will it take for companies to return to normal in terms of the service they provide, in terms of their output? And I think that's a very difficult question still to answer. Um, And I think many people now are suggesting that this is going to be a process that uh, we're going to be well into 2021 before we really can say we're back to normality. So in terms of that, you're suggesting, therefore, that uh, this week we saw a bit more volatility and uh, discounts. Were they generally wider or narrower than before? Yes, the discounts, uh, as you remember, they started the year at incredibly narrow levels, uh, probably about 1% or so. Um, In the kind of uh, really bad days in March, we saw those discounts widen out to 22%, which is uh, a level that we hadn't really seen since the global financial crisis. But then they bounced back quite sharply and they've moved in to about 6% where we started this week. Um, In the last few days, they've widened out a little bit again, probably to about 8% or so. So again, there's still a case of, of the market really just trying to find its feet a little bit. But in overall terms, the uh, investment trust sector is still performing a little bit better than the all share index. Obviously, it's not quite the same mix of assets and so on, but uh, it's still doing, proving their worth anyway so far this year. Yeah, no, very much so. I mean, the, the, the investment company uh, sector has outperformed uh, the all share. It's still fallen, it's still dropped probably at about 12%, 12 to 15% uh, down so far year to date, but that compares with um, you know 20 to 25% down for the FTSE all share. But as you say, it's a, it's a different bag of assets, frankly. So let's look a little more detail then at some of the uh, specific investment trusts that have either reported or said things this week. Uh, obviously, that's a whole part of the process by which, as you say, investors can start to take a better get a better handle on not just the, the, where we are in the crisis, but also how individual trusts are coping and responding to the uh, events of the pandemic. So let's uh, let's pick out one or two, shall we, and just see. Uh, I thought one that caught my eye. Uh, we might just start with this is is in the property sector, where we've had uh, a couple of results this week, where with quite sort of contrasting statements and outlooks, I would, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, so I think the two investment companies that you're referring to are uh, Picton Property and the BMO Commercial Property Fund. Uh, And they're both significant funds, they'll have a lot of investors and shareholders. uh, And they've both, you know, performed over the long term, they've done a good job for shareholders in terms of capital growth and income. However, quite contrasting set of results out this week. So in the case of BMO Commercial Property, they announced uh, a near 4% decline in their portfolio valuation, uh, whereas Picton, uh, and this is, I should say, this is to the end of March, this encompasses, encompasses this very difficult period, uh, whereas Picton, we were down just 1%. Uh, 
Uh, in the case of Picton, they said they were they would look at their dividend uh, policy again at the end of April. But in the case of the BMO fund, they announced this week that they would look to suspend uh, their dividend. And I think that's quite significant. They're not the first property investment company that has looked to suspend their dividend. There's already been quite a few in the uh, past few weeks. But certainly it's it's one of the largest, if not the flagship property uh, investment company. So this was a significant move. And when you read or look at the, the board's rationale for doing this, you can absolutely see where they're coming from. So, you know, in the, the first quarter of the, this year, they did receive um, significant amounts of income, albeit a little bit behind perhaps where they would expect to be normally. But it's the fact that they've looked forward and they, they know that it's going to become increasingly difficult to receive the, the, the rent through from their underlying tenants. And so they're moving now really to, to shore up their position, preserve their cash, uh, and announce they're going to look to suspend that dividend, certainly in the short term. So that's something which uh, others are going to perhaps use as a benchmark, as you say. But I mean, their shares have been pretty heavily punished for uh, for coming out with a, this kind of uh, statement, have they not? That's right. The share price was off um, on the news of the dividend suspension. Uh, and you can understand the reason why, in as much as I think a lot of the investors will have held it for income purposes. I mean, it had a very uh, attractive yield. Um, it paid a monthly dividend, which is relatively unusual uh, for, for any listed company, to be honest, but even for an investment company, not that not too many of them uh, do it. And it managed to keep its dividend at this level since 2006. So that's all through those kind of dark days of the global financial crisis, where the vast majority of property investment companies uh, felt they had to uh, cut their dividend. The BMO fund, it used to be called FNC Commercial Property, but it did manage to sustain it through, through those times. But um, in recent years, it hadn't been covered. So in the most recent year, I think it was 80, 82% covered. So they've been using a bit of capital to support their dividend level. But I think that at this stage, they had to take a view. And they've got a reasonable weighting to uh, retail property, not least some prime retail property in the middle of uh, London, St. Christopher's Place, which I think on a long-term view, you would recognize as a prime asset. But at the moment, clearly, um, the, the, the tenants in, in those kind of properties are going to be struggling to, to pay their quarterly rent. And I think the, the board's decision of the, the BMO fund was a reflection of that. Yes, I mean, the retail space, I mean, they have shops and restaurants, uh, the retail and you know, dining out kind of sectors have been obviously very, very heavily hit by the crisis. Uh, and property companies that have higher exposure to that would expect to be worse affected than those which are investing in, in a different uh, mix of assets, including things like warehouses and logistics and so on, which are actually possibly even doing more business than they were before in some cases. Okay, so moving on from property, let's take a look around some other sectors of the market. What about there's a, a trust called Mercantile, which uh, again is a, is a very large uh, investment trust. It's over a, a billion pounds uh, market cap, I believe. What's the story there? What did they come out and say uh, what, that uh, struck you this week? Well, uh, Mercantile is, I think, is a very interesting uh, investment trust company. They're managed by a team at uh, J.P. Morgan uh, Asset Management, and actually, it's been a very strong performer now in recent years. The results that they had out this week uh, were primarily focused on 2019, when they saw significant outperformance. And, and just to be clear, the area they invest in UK equities, so um, stocks and shares listed in the UK marketplace. But they don't tend to uh, invest in the in the top 100 companies. They don't really invest in the FTSE 100. They're much more focused in the mid cap and the smaller companies, uh, and they're looking for good quality growth companies. And and that's performed very well. It had a fantastic run towards the end of last year. Clearly, this year 
uh, much more difficult backdrop. But I think the key point here is that there is a tremendous advantage for, for Mercantile and for, indeed for a number of companies in a similar position where you have a closed-ended pool of capital, i.e. you don't have to worry about uh, redemptions or creating liquidity for people coming in and out, as you would do if you were running an equivalent open-ended fund. You can take long-term decisions, you can deploy uh, modest levels of gearing and really take a long-term view. And I think the message that came from the, the manager's report with those results, but they are now seeing some very interesting opportunities. And I think probably the other key takeaway on Mercantile was that they do have a pretty attractive uh, dividend yield. It's not too far off 4%, all things considered. And uh, in those results, the board made mention of that, and, and they, they recognize that for many shareholders, that's a very important part of the investment return. And given that the, the fund has revenue reserves equivalent to 1.2 times uh, of the annual dividend, uh, that they were, if necessary, they would be prepared to, to to use those. So again, that's without making dividend forecasts. I think that's reassuring uh, in that particular instance. And did they have anything to say about the outlook? Uh, obviously, you know, some of these smaller companies, medium-sized companies, have been hit quite heavily in share price terms. What did they say about the outlook and the way that uh, the world might develop once we get through or start to get through the virus pandemic? Yeah, I, it's a good question. I think their message was pretty much in line with what we've seen from other specialist managers investing in UK mid and small cap companies. And that clearly the focus has been on the balance sheet of those underlying companies recently. In other words, do they have sufficient financing to see them through this period? Um, but then looking a little bit further down the tracks, and, and maybe not in the case of Mercantile, but similar funds have talked about the opportunity that they foresee coming through in, in terms of additional fundraising rounds. And actually, the UK market's now starting to see a number of these mid and small cap companies announcing that they are going to look to, to raise additional money to see them through to shore up their balance sheets. And again, when we look back to 2008-9, that, again, that very difficult period through the global financial crisis, um, it wasn't a dissimilar picture. And in fact, that that turned out to be um, a pretty good time to, to get invested in those type of companies. Not all of them came through it, clearly. Um, but those entry points are normally quite attractively priced. So talking to a few UK small cap managers, I think they see quite an opportunity. The providers of capital at the moment could see very attractive entry prices. But clearly, it's very difficult. I think the underlying companies, uh, you know, in terms of earnings guidance, uh, are in a very difficult position. Um, and it's very much dependent on not just the length of time that the lockdown uh, exists for, but uh, how long it takes us to get back to normality thereafter. Okay, so that's a, a UK-centric uh, investment trust with a, a wide exposure to the to the UK economy. But let's take a look at a couple of others which uh, reported this week. Um, we've got Schroeder Asia Total Return, and that's obviously interesting because what's going on in the Far East is very different in many respects to what's going on in other parts of the world. Obviously, it was where the virus pandemic started in China, and that obviously had influence uh, effect on other parts of Asia. So what was their take on the world at, uh, at the moment? Um, the, the two managers of that company, Robin Parbrook and King Fu Lee, always have some really interesting things to say about not just their markets, uh, Asian equities, and uh, they're based in uh, Hong Kong and uh, Singapore. And, and actually, uh, Robin Parbrook, to be fair, does spend a bit more time with, uh, in Scotland these days. But um, they always have some great insight, not just into their region, but across the wider world. And if listeners of this podcast do get a moment to read their report and accounts, the investment manager's report in Shredder Asia Total Return, I would recommend it. They, they talk about maybe this being the end of an era, and they term it in terms of the, this unfettered capitalism 
that we've seen really since 1980. Uh, 1980 to 2020 is how they expressed it. And maybe from here, things are significantly different and they point to the necessity for increasing uh, government state uh, intervention in, into companies and therefore markets and how things will be quite different from here on in. So they give a very interesting view on the region. They, you know, they would say this, wouldn't they? But their kind of conclusion is that actually this Asian equities will do quite well out of this new era that perhaps we're going into. But in terms of the, the insight they provided, it's, it's well worth a read of their report. Okay, well, I'm sure that uh, some of our listeners will, will take you up on that suggestion. I certainly had a look at that and it's very interesting indeed because the longer term implications are important. Tell me something about uh, Scottish American, for example. Tell us about, well, first of all, <laughs> what is what does a Scottish American do? It's perhaps not as immediately obvious what it does from its name because it's a very old investment trust. Uh, tell us what they were saying and, and, and how they've been performing. So uh, Scottish American, it's also known as Saints, actually, just to confuse matters slightly. Uh, but they're part of the Bailey Gifford stable and uh, they invest in global equities. So basically uh, companies around the world. But they have, they're a bit different to their stable mates. So namely Scottish Mortgage and Monks because they have more of an equity income mandate. So the dividends are a very important part of their investment process. Um, but they don't just buy high yielding companies. What they're really trying to do is look for companies that pay dividends, but can grow those dividends over a period of time. So it's a slightly different take. Uh, and again, that's a fund that's performed really well in, in recent years uh, and has been you know, highly rated, um, consistently trading on a premium. But what they came out and said this week, I think probably the most interesting thing was, was about that dividend. And I think tellingly, everyone's looking at dividend sustainability at the moment for obvious reasons. And in the in the announcement or the update they provided this week, the board actually expressed confidence in, in the investment company's ability to pay a reliable dividend. Clearly, they, I think they've always got to be a bit careful about providing dividend predictions. But uh, again, it's, a, it's, an, it's an investment trust company that has revenue reserves. And I think it was clear from that statement that the board would be very minded to keep that dividend uh, going as long as they possibly could. And then so one other, let's dive into one other sector where we had a, we had a trust reporting this week, and that is, that is the always interesting world of private equity. Uh, we've also heard from another BMO investor trust, uh, BMO Private Equity. Was that, that was also a, an F&C one, was it, before, I imagine, probably? Absolutely right, yes, correct. It was. Okay, so in private equity, we've seen some very sharp moves in, in share prices. Obviously, the reporting schedule, the timing of reporting from private equity firms is, is sometimes different. The NAVs don't come out so frequently uh, and so on because the, the companies they invest in are mostly obviously unlisted. So what, what's the story from there? And uh, can you tell us, I mean, some, some private equity trusts have been hit very hard, others have been hit not so hard at all. Uh, so tell us what, uh, what's the story there? Uh, no, you're right. I mean, private equity has probably been, it's been one of the areas that's been hit the hardest, really, and uh, for good reason. Essentially, it's an illiquid underlying asset classes. These are private companies in the vast majority of cases. And we are looking at valuation points that invariably at the end of last year. And in fact, the results for the BMO fund this week were pretty much focused on, on 2019, where actually that particular fund uh, had performed quite nicely. It'd been re-rated. It'd seen its share price outperform its NAV performance. But I think for me, the most interesting thing was, was the manager, Hamish Mayer, is a very experienced manager in private equity. It was his comments on the outlook for private equity in 2020, which is you know, nice to know how they did last year, but it really, what's the story this year? He was talking about his expectations for uh, valuations for, for his portfolio 
Um, and, uh, you know, obviously he, he considered his portfolio to be high quality and in, in good shape. But he was talking about maybe about a 10% fall in the NAV valuation at the end of March for his fund, um, which given the, the, the share price declines, you might expect that that probably felt a little bit light. But he made the point, I think it's a good point, that the expectation would be for um, actually to perhaps see two legs down in the world of private equity, that it might not be until the end of June valuations that we really see the full impact of the, the coronavirus on, on the performance of the underlying companies. You've got to remember that actually in March, well, suddenly for the first quarter of this year, a number of these companies actually continue to perform quite well. We could see the market selling off as we hit the end of March, but it's really going to be in the second quarter of this year where a lot of these companies will have very low activity indeed, but the full impact that can be seen in uh, arguably, you perhaps won't, won't see those come through to the valuations as at the end of June. Another reason, of course, that the private equity was particularly badly hit in the global financial crisis was that they, uh, in many cases, had some quite significant gearing or borrowing they'd done, uh, which obviously is one of the things that investment trusts have the capacity to do. Uh, how, how does the gearing in the private equity sector these days compare to what it was during the financial crisis. And, and obviously some are more effective than others. I don't know where BMO private equity was in that, in that space. I think they're not, not as highly geared as some, but uh, how would that picture be looking now at the moment, Sam? Yeah, I think the key, the key thing here is it's not as bad as in 2008-9. You're absolutely right at that stage. There were some very, very highly geared private equity companies. Um, with, with gearing with private equity, you've got to look at um, the fund level. So in the case of the BMO fund, it, has, it is geared, but it's relatively modest. But it's also the gearing at the underlying level as well. So how geared are these actual investments? And actually, most of these private equity funds, they do provide that disclosure, but you've kind of got to take that into account as well. I think our feeling is that gearing is a factor, and it's certainly a factor in how the valuations of these things move around but it's not at an unsustainable level. And I think the other point here is that when you, when you look at the underlying level and the sources of gearing, a lot of this will have come from, from banks and finance, financiers and be subject to covenants, that the reality will be that there's a, there's a conversation to be had at that level, that you know, it's not in the interest of, of the banking sector to look at these underlying companies and, and you know, wish them any ill. I think there is very, the feedback that we seem, we seem to be getting is that um, they will look to work with companies to see them through this period. You know, could it be a case that we see refinancing in some of these private equity companies? So the underlying companies I'm talking about now, yes, that's undoubtedly the case. And in fact, uh, going back to, to Hamish Mayer and the BMO fund, uh, he made the comment, the observation that where, whereas he expected investment activity to be very low this year, in other words, there won't be too many new companies appearing in his portfolio. And equally, there won't be too many companies sold but it would be entirely possible for some of those underlying companies to come again to their owners, such as the BMO private equity fund, and ask for additional financing to see them through. And I suppose the other point is that the, in, in general terms, the, the cost of the debt that they're carrying either in the top level or at the fund level or at the uh, component com portfolio company is, is obviously uh, much lower than it was going into the financial crisis because they've all been able to refinance at, uh, at uh, relatively low interest rates. Having said that, though, I mean, I, I was struck also looking at um, across the private equity sector this week. I mean, you've got one or two of them, like I think Better Capital, which is, I think, John Moulton's uh, outfit. You know, they've been hit very hard and they're trading on very big discounts. And then you've got something like um, HG, on the other hand, which is trading on a very relatively tight discount. So 
there's a lot of differentiation across this sector in particular, is, is there not? Absolutely correct. And that is really a function of the fact that they do perform very differently. So you could look at a pool of, uh, I don't know, UK equity income type funds, and you know that broadly speaking, they're going to give you the FTSE all share plus or minus. You know, they are the, the returns are grouped around that as a benchmark, whereas private equity, there is a considerable dispersion of returns over the long term. So you mentioned HG Capital. I mean, that's been a tremendous story. It's performed very, very strongly over the long term. And I mean, most people would see that as kind of best in class in the kind of listed private equity subsector. Um, but equally, you've got you've got some funds in there, uh, and I'll, I'll spare their blushes and won't name them, but have not been uh, very strong performers, and, and that's reflected in their discounts. So as always, there's plenty of diversity uh, to be had in the investment trust sector, and you uh, you have to pick the ones that, are, that, are, that have got the real class and the long-term performers uh, to be sure of a uh, decent return over time. Uh, so let's just finish then, Simon, by looking ahead a little bit. I mean, we've talked a lot about dividend sustainability, and we've learned, obviously, from the announcements this week, a little bit more about what the outlook is there. So I'd be interested in your kind of general comments about how you think that trend is developing relative to your initial expectations that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Obviously, there is going to be an impact. Has it been greater or less than you think? And then looking forward also, you know, what you think might happen to this issue of gearing and how that's going to affect the way that investment trusts sort of develop over the, over the rest of the year, as far as we can tell at this point. So in terms of dividends, it's kind of playing out as we expected in terms of um, there are particular areas within the marketplace that, that the companies are struggling to maintain their dividends. So we've already talked about the BMO commercial property fund. And I think that's an asset class that's going to really remain in the spotlight. We would expect to see more uh, dividend cuts or dividend suspensions uh, come out of that area, uh, particularly as it becomes clearer what the underlying position is. In other words, how much actually rent uh, is being generated Equally, I think there's more specialist funds, such as the debt and leasing funds. I think we're probably going to get a bit more colour and we'd expect to see more uh, dividend cuts come through there. We, on, the, on the kind of more general uh, equity income side, uh, there's, there's been nothing particularly big developed there at the moment. And I, I think that would be our expectation that it would be a number of months before anything became entirely clear there that, that they, they were struggling. But we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Actually, there was one today, the Invesco Perpetual UK Smaller Companies, um, that pays out a degree of capital to income. They are they are changing uh, their dividend payments going forward. They've historically paid, over the last few years, they've paid 4% of their share price at the end of their financial year, which is 31st of January, uh, which just so happened to be the kind of recent peak of the, of the share price of that particular company. Uh, and they've said, actually, that's too much capital being returned by a dividend. So they're looking to bring that back a little bit. But um, very few on that kind of more general equity side have, have made any changes to their dividend policy. On the gearing, that's an interesting one, actually, because gearing is, is a real double-edged sword. I mean, gearing can enhance returns for investment companies, so the use of a, a modest amount of, of debt on the balance sheet, but equally, when markets are falling, uh, it can really uh, increase uh, losses as well. What we've seen, actually, is that uh, the use of gearing going into this crisis is, was relatively modest, and so it has remained really. It's probably on, the, the average on a medium basis is 5% across most mainstream investment companies. So that's 5% of NAS assets. So it's relatively modest. Um, and within that, the, probably a third, if not a little bit more, are not actually using gearing at all. Um, those that can and do 
Um, interesting, some I think are probably happy to take their gearing levels down, but others are prepared to use it to increase or to reflect their conviction in the, 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 the portfolio that they've got and in some of the opportunities that they're seeing. Uh, and some investment managers are happy to you know, just draw down on their debt facilities a little bit and, and pick up cheap stock on the basis that in the long term, uh, they and their shareholders will do very well out of it. Yes, I think it's fair to say that one of the uh, features of any you know, kind of market panic or market dislocation or market shock, depends how you want to describe it. I suppose it's a slightly, uh, it's, it's an evocative term. But anyway, when you have a sharp market fall, what tends to happen is you do tend to get these disparities and some things turn out to be very good value, very good bargains by in the light of hindsight and other things turn out to be fully justified. So uh, uh, it would be surprising if there weren't people out there hunting for some bargains at the moment, uh, albeit that we don't yet know how the whole uh, economic and medical situation is going to play out. So I think we might leave it there, Simon. It's been very interesting, another interesting week. Is there anything coming up next week that, you, uh, that you're particularly looking forward to or would you think will give us a particular handle or anything? Or is it just going to be, we're getting presumably quite a steady run of uh, companies reporting now. So what do you think the outlook is for next week? I won't ask you beyond that at this point. <laughs> I think the same as this week. I think we're going to see more companies reporting. And as time goes on, they're going to have more, uh, more better informed uh, opinions on what's happened at the underlying level. Um, I think markets are going to continue to be uh, volatile, and I expect that's just not for next week. That's going to be for a few weeks to come. Okay, and then the final thing I just thought I wanted to mention in passing, it was, uh, it was rather sad to say that uh, one of the fund managers, one of the, one of the larger, better-known uh, UK equity funds, has, uh, is taking a leave of absence because of illness. That uh, investment trust is called Temple Bar. Perhaps you could just tell us a little about that. It's about $500 million, I believe, in, in market cap. But it's a very long-standing team that uh, manages that fund, I believe. So you would hope, if you're an investor in that uh, trust, that uh, there will be some continuity, at least, in the uh, in the way that that trust is managed. Can you tell us anything about that? What you what are your thoughts on that? Yes. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So I think you're talking about Alistair Mundy, uh, who's the long-standing manager of Temple Bar, a very uh, respected figure uh, in investment management. Um, he has a, a kind of value contrarian approach. So he looks to invest in uh, UK companies often with quite attractive yield levels, but effectively fallen out of favor with the marketplace for one reason or another. Um, I think it's fair to say that that investment approach has struggled a little bit in recent years, but over the long time, uh, Alistair has done, I think, a very good job for his for his shareholders. So and it was sad to hear today that he's uh, taken some, some time off for, for health reasons, uh, and obviously we'll see how that plays out. But uh, as, you, as you just mentioned there, he's, he's part of a, a well-resourced and experienced team. So I think investors and shareholders can look to that to give them some comfort that there will be continuity in terms of the investment approach. Well, we're wishing well. I've known him a little bit and he's uh, not only a good fund manager, he's also a very entertaining guy who uh, writes some amusing stuff as, as well as insightful stuff about the market. So thank you, Simon. It's been very good. It's been an interesting week. Um, as you say, not such a clear-cut trend as in, in the previous weeks. But we'll look forward to hearing more about it next week when we uh, hold this podcast again. So many thanks for your time, Simon. Thank you. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.